Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching from God's Word you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to Him. If you're ever in the Madison, Alabama area, we'd love for you to worship with us on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.30 a.m. If you have any other questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, find us at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to also check out our Bible study podcast, Madison Church of Christ Bible Studies. Thanks again for stopping by. Several years ago, my wife Ellen and I were able to take a trip to Washington, D.C. and to explore the National Mall there. We got to see a lot of, a lot of different monuments and a lot of different uh, statues along the way. And while we were there, it was also a very interesting time to be on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. because it was in the midst of a government shutdown. So we saw all of these monuments, most of them from afar. Uh, there was one moment where we well, past the Vietnam Memorial, made our way through uh, Korea and, and World War I, made our way up to, to where Abraham Lincoln sits. And there were some barriers at the bottom of the stairs, and everybody kind of stood around nervously for a few minutes, until eventually one brave and slightly lunatic soul just took off, just charged straight for the Lincoln Monument. And it was a moment of, can, can he do that? So then two or three more, and then four or five more. And then we found out, no, in fact, you cannot do that as the, the very, very large policeman on horses galloped up and said, no, come here. And so they did. Uh, and then I felt really good about my decision to just watch and observe. If you've ever been to D.C., you know that the Lincoln Memorial in particular is massive. Lincoln is sitting down, but he's still 19 feet tall. He's made of some rock uh, he is, is carved into his face or what we assume he looked like because of photographs that we have. And so if you see on the, the image here, you see that this is a very stately man. This is, a, I would say, an imposing figure, but it's clearly not Abraham Lincoln. There's probably another statue you're familiar with, a statue of David, and this is the only portion we'll show of, of that statue here. I'll just move on. Uh, we don't know exactly what David looked like, but I suppose he may have had hair. You know, he may have had a nose that was not quite Owen Wilson level, but this is a statue to give us the, the image of what David might have looked like. It's meant to kind of point us to another figure, to another person. It's not the real thing. We'll move on to my personal favorite statue that's ever been created. It resides in Chicago, Illinois. This is a statue of one Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And Michael Jordan was, was a guy that I grew up watching. In Alabama, we don't have professional teams. So you pick a team that's either close by or a team that you can watch with regularity. So we had WGN. So I was a Bulls fan. And again, it was the 90s. That was sort of par for the course. Except for a little bit of a venture with Penny Hardaway. But I eventually came back to Michael. But this is a statue that looks a lot like Michael Jordan. That's the way he would stretch out when he dunks. It's the silhouette that's on all of his shoes. In fact, the shoes that he's wearing in that statue. There's some kind of creepy faces there uh, beneath him trying to reach up, but not quite reaching his height. This is meant to point people to, wait for it, the greatest basketball player of all time. It's meant to point to a, a person that's not there, but it's meant to memorialize them. It's meant to kind of quite literally put them on a pedestal in this situation. The image that you're looking at is not the actual person. And I know that I'm saying that and it seems redundant, but I want us to remember 
Sometimes statues are created and they don't quite land. Uh, this is a statue of Cristiano Ronaldo. I'll let you be the judge. <laughs> he does not look pleased. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if Pixar got a hold of the statue or an art teacher just got upset with the suit and punched it right in the face right before the assignment was due. It just, it's just not quite there. And so I'm pretty sure that Cristiano would agree with me. In fact, I would, I would quote him probably as saying that an image is not the same as the reality of that image. The image that we see in photographs is not the actual image that that photograph bears. It's not the person, excuse me, that that image bears. It's not, it's a, it's a picture of them. It's a resemblance of them. Statues are meant to point to something or someone else at another time. And I want you to keep this phrase in the back of your mind as we, we begin our study this morning. An image is not the same as the reality of that particular image. In the 1990s, if you were like me, you spent a lot of time going to the mall and especially sitting in the food court doing some, some people watching. It was peak people watching season at the mall. And oftentimes they would have uh, these little exhibits that would pop up for a few months at a time. Sometimes it's a massage chair. Sometimes it's virtual reality. This was the first time I encountered virtual reality growing up as a child. Someone would be wearing these massive headsets. They would be in this circular little contraption and they would have kind of what this kid has here. He's got a, a massive controller. And then if you can see just behind him, there's actually a large screen there, a large monitor that everybody else that's in the mall is looking at and laughing at him as he's, you know, making all these weird contortion movements. But we actually get to see on that monitor in a flat space what he's seeing in an immersive environment. So for him, he's moving all around and his brain thinks that he's actually in this space filled with brightly colored parallelograms and the Mona Lisa. He thinks that he's in this, this sort of virtual reality. And we call it reality because our brain still thinks that everything is happening as though it were actually happening in the moment. If you fast forward to today, VR has changed a little bit. There's been kind of a resurgence in the last three to five years. Virtual reality headsets now look a lot smaller, a little more sleek. And then there on the right, this is what you would see if you had like a meta-oculus. This is an avatar, an AI-generated, three-dimensional, virtually living, breathing avatar of Mark Zuckerberg. And it looks like Mark Zuckerberg, only it shows a little bit more facial expressions than he typically does in an interview, but it looks a lot like him. And then when it talks, his head will animate as though he's actually talking. So virtual reality has changed quite a bit over the years. And virtual reality is something that, believe it or not, I think in the church we need to talk about. And you may be thinking, why are we talking about Zuckerberg? Well, we're, I don't intend to talk about him. That's, we're done with, with that portion of it. But the idea that we can experience something that mimics reality without actually being in that space physically is something that is an important conversation. Because where we leave this conversation as the adults in the room, the next generation picks it up. Let me give you some thoughts about, about this. This idea of an image not being the same as the reality of that image, this is a very, very biblical concept. This is something that we as Christians need to know and understand because it's a part of the foundation of our faith. It's part of the foundation of the Bible. If you look with me in the book of Hebrews, you can turn or swipe there, beginning in chapter 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, 
that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Scan down to verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sac- were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, but with, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear the presence of God on our behalf. If you look in chapter 10 and verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Lastly, in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, the elements of the Old Testament were never meant to be the end in and of themselves. They were intended to point us to a greater reality, and that is the reality of Christ. We no longer observe the Sabbath because in Christ we have our Sabbath rest. We no longer offer sacrifice bulls and goats in the blood of animals. Because Hebrews tells us, first of all, those things never actually saved us. The reality of what they are pointing to is found in Christ. His sacrifice, his blood was spilled and poured out once and for all to cover all sin. So this idea that the image is not the reality is something that we need to understand very deeply. And then when we talk about creating, or living in a life in this digital age where we can create these virtual spaces, we can have digital communication and we can have a relationship with people, be connected online. We need to understand that there will always be a separation between the virtual and the reality. And we can't confuse those two. And we have to be able to articulate this very well so that emerging generations understand. We have to make sure that the experience that happens at this building among these people is always better and deeper than what can happen online. And that is not to diminish online. We have folks that are joining us right now that have gathered with us. Three years ago, we had four or 500 Madison Churches of Christ as we gathered in our homes and we, we were able to worship online. And I don't know if you were like me, but I remember looking up in the top corner and watching that number get higher and higher of the people that were tuned in at the, the premiere. It was exciting because we were all showing up, but in our own places, as so many Christians do across the world. Technology can help enhance that. In fact, virtual reality has helped a lot of things over the years. The technology itself has, has been really interesting. Uh, it's been used in counseling in a, a lot of ways. Virtual reality can help people that are dealing with trauma. It was used a lot after 9-11. Therapists would, uh, would have first responders and others that have lost loved ones that lived through the trauma of that event in some way. They would recreate with footage in a virtual reality setting, and they would walk through that experience and they would, they would be able to move forward from that trauma with closure and with a better understanding of what actually happened to kind of help things fall back in place in their mind. First responders also use it to train. VR technology is super helpful for things that are very dangerous and even life-threatening because we can simulate that in a safe environment without the risk of actual harm, and without the risk of actual death. 
I'm glad that my first responders train. So it's very helpful there. It's very helpful in an educational uh, setting. Imagine if instead of sitting in a Bible class with your fourth grader, <clears throat> excuse me, instead of just reading through the text, what if you could read through the text but in, in an immersive way where you and that class, they put on their headsets and instead of showing a picture from a map, we actually walk into a first century prison. And across the way, we see a figure. It's an avatar, but it's a figure. And it's, he begins speaking the text. And Paul talks to us about his experience. And we get to see what it might have looked like when the earthquake came. And then when the Philippian jailer came in and Paul stopped, stopped him from taking his life, studied with his family, his entire household. They were all saved. It could be a really impactful way to teach. But that's not Paul. And we have to always keep in the forefront of our minds the idea that the church in the digital age is still, in fact, the church. That the reality that we, we experience here, and not, it's not um, limited to this building, to this physical location, but the way we interact with each other, the way we're in each other's lives, it has to be better than what's offered in a virtual space. Because the virtual points to the relationship. We talked about this last week when we said that Technology is a wonderful tool to help us stay connected, to help us communicate, but it is not the substance of the relationship. It is imperative that we do not lose sight of that. The church in the digital age is the church, no matter what age we find ourselves in, whether it's in the industrial age, whether it's in the first century age. The church is God's people. God's people are called to go and to amplify the gospel using whatever tools their age provides for them. But more than that, the church in the digital age is a hospital. In Mark chapter 2, we read that the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I have a friend I grew up with that has a phrase, he says that God's people are the elect not the elite. And you may have heard the phrase in the past that the church is a hospital, not a, um, not a country club. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Who goes to a hospital? People that are sick, people that are trying to help people who are sick, and people that are there to encourage both the helpers and the sick. Sounds like a pretty good church to me. If we understand in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we will understand that we need help, and we also need to help. And when we, we see that in ourselves, in our own lives, when we see that in our relationships, then we begin to create a culture in a congregation that is spiritually healthy. People are willing to confide in each other. People are willing to talk about their sins. People are willing, people are actually worthy of trusting. That's the culture we're trying to create every day both in our lives individually, when we wake up, when we decide to die to self and to live for Christ. Church in the digital age confesses sin, and this is, a, this is one that is very difficult. I think it's very difficult because, one, we live in a, an increasingly autonomous and an increasingly individualistic age. Technology is a, a big part of that. It's allowed us to feel like we have control. In fact, right now, if I wanted to, I could change the temperature of the room, or Joe Harless could. He, could. he could change the weather in here, essentially. He could make it warmer, or he could make it colder. 
And when I get in my car and I'm driving home, I can change the weather. I can make it warmer. I can make it colder. When I get home, I can do the same thing. We live in an age where we have this perception of complete control. And too often, life reminds us in some very real surprising ways that we are not in control. When we don't confess sin to each other or to God, we sort of take on that control in a spiritual way. We don't relinquish the burden of sin. We don't respond to guilt properly, which is intended to point us back to God. You know, when you have, when you have a pain, that's actually a good thing because it lets you know something is wrong, lets you know that you need to address it. I had a friend in college who had a younger brother. He had a, a disorder where he didn't feel pain. His, his pain receptors didn't fire correctly in the brain. And to be a little brother, that's, a, that's bad because you basically become a pinata, uh, as my friend Lincoln described it. But there was one day where he was playing hide and seek with his older sibling, and he went and hid under the car. Mom came out to crank the car and didn't know he was under there, so she turned it on. I don't know if you've ever stood next to an exhaust pipe for any amount of time with a car running. It gets very warm. Had he been able to feel pain, he would have known to let go. He survived, of course, but he, he was, his body was, was burned. When we don't let go of sin, we will get burned. There will be damage, and it's not just to us. It's in our relationships because we begin to lash out at people. We don't trust people. But the more we confess sin, the more we let go, the more we say, God, I agree with your law. I was in violation of that law. Forgive me. The more we do that with God, the more we do that with each other, the more our congregation changes. In James chapter 5, verse 16, we read, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If we look in 1 John, we read that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do you prevent being a country club? You talk to each other. We've got to be in each other's lives. When you trust people, you're willing to share and to talk about things. And let's be for real. Life is really, really difficult. The moment you get to a point where you feel like you're starting to get the hang of things, something changes. And the moment you get to where you're like, okay, things are good, then oftentimes things go not so good. If you look back over the last year, since January of 2023, we have averaged approximately or just shy of four deaths a month. And some of those were our members here at Madison. Many of those are immediate family members of our folks here at Madison. There's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And there's been a huge saturation of pain and loss just in the last few weeks. We're in the midst of one of the hardest and most difficult times of year for so many people. Oftentimes we focus on the good when we're not negatively impacted, but that's not how the church works. The church keeps their eyes up. Right now we, we may have people drowning some drowning in sin, some drowning in sorrow. I asked a question to early service this morning. I'll ask it to you as well. Do you know what it sounds like when someone's drowning? Here, I'll show you. Very rarely do you hear someone drown. Most of the time, 
you witness it. You see them drowning. You see them struggling. And then you have a choice of whether or not to act. But you know what happens when we don't look at each other, when we're not in each other's lives? It looks a little bit like this. Hey, man, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Well, that's good. Yep. All right. Well, see you later. We're doing good. We're doing fine. And we leave it at that. But inside, we're, we're, we're drowning. We're struggling. We're hurting. We don't, we don't know how to process grief or we don't know how to, how to reconcile relationships. We don't know how to shake the sin that just seems to continue to get in this cycle. That is not the church. The church is not a group of people that just keep all that bundled up inside and say everything's fine. The church is not a group of just fine people. The church is a group of people that are broken spiritually that have been healed and redeemed by Jesus Christ. A, pe- a group of people that pursue the gospel at all costs, including uncomfortable conversations including going the extra step. Hey, man, you, you said you were doing okay. That didn't sound like you were doing great. What's, what's going on? Maybe we should grab lunch and talk more about this. Or maybe in that moment, instead of saying, I'm going to pray for you, you pray with them. We are a hospital. It's okay to be sick here, but we're not going to let you stay sick here. We're here to heal. A church in the digital age eliminates taboo topics. We do that by being in each other's lives and having difficult and sometimes uncomfortable conversations. Somewhere along the way, I began to realize that there's sort of this list of topics that you don't talk about at church, and you don't talk about at home, or you don't talk about at family gatherings, right? There's this unofficial list. I want to be very clear here. That list is a lie. It doesn't exist. We talk about anything here at church. We talk about anything in our homes with each other because uncomfortable conversations, that's no excuse for not being in someone's life spiritually. When we say that's a little too uncomfortable for me, we're saying, Jesus, you're a little too uncomfortable for me. How many times did he stop and talk with people that, that were in the shadows of life or the people that were ostracized? He, he sat down with sinners and tax collectors. I don't know a lot of IRS people I mean, maybe, maybe we have some here. We can sit down. We can have a meal. <laughs> what he's saying there is the people that are shunned by their society, the people that are looked down on their society, the people that, are, that feel isolated and alone. You don't have to work for the IRS to be a sinner. We're all sinners. So we, we check that box together collectively. If I make eye contact, then we have a potential to have a friendship there, right? Have a, a theory that I have something in common, at least one thing with everybody on the planet. It's just a matter of time of figuring out what that is. For all of us in this room, it's Christ. It's a pretty good place to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul did not shy away from a, a taboo topic. 1 Corinthians 5, we have what I refer to as the pilot episode of the Jerry Springer show. Paul writes that to the church there in Corinth, says, you have sin going on in your midst that you're not addressing at all, you're not acknowledging at all. In fact, it actually makes the pagans around you blush that a man has his father's wife. For some reason, we take the topic of sexual sin in particular and we kind of put it on its, in its own category. We only talk about it from afar and we don't actually talk about it when people struggle, when marriages are falling apart because that part of their relationship is struggling, when individuals are drowning because their access to, to lustful content and adult content is so pervasive today and so easy today. The digital age makes this particular sin and this particular temptation 
It's a bear to wrestle with. Last week, we talked about a lot of stats. If you go back and you listen to our class that we, we, um, we went through this topic two nights, last quarter on Wednesdays, and we went into some of the very real data that shows just how, how difficult of a topic this is. And that data was, was from the internet and from other reputable sources. Here's a, a chart. And this talks, the question was asked, did you or, did you or your parents, excuse me, did your parents have any kind of a, a conversation with you about adult content and about sexuality growing up? There were about 111 respondents in here. And as you can see up here, 48 out of there, so 43% said yes. And just under 57% said no. This is not from the internet. This is not other people. This was from our Bible class on a Wednesday night. Out of 111 college age to older, more than half did not have any guidance from their parents with regards to sexuality. And so then we enter a digital age where the technology gets to redefine everything and there's an oversaturation of everything. And that oversaturation is not trying to paint a holy portrait of what God has planned. In fact, it hijacks and it rewires the brain in a way that it makes a mockery of what God has called holy. And we look up and we say, why, why is this happening? How did we get here? I want to show you that this is not a young people issue. We broke this down into different categories based off of, of generations. So you have millennials, Gen Z, uh, boomers, and Gen X. And the dark blue represents the percentage of respondents that said, no, my parents had not talked to me. So if you look at the millennials and Gen Z, it's about half. Half did, half did not. Gen X is a little less than half. When you get to boomers, that's a disturbing statistic. Well more than half of their parents did not talk to them about sexuality. I'm not sure if you've seen any of the stats, but we're, we're losing people in the church. People are leaving, according to all the surveys that have been done, especially over the last three to five years. There's, there's been a, the, the exodus happened before COVID, but it, it ramped up during COVID. And a lot of times we talk about how do we keep our young people? And that's a, a worthwhile conversation. It's a nuanced conversation. Let's have more of those conversations. But what I don't hear, but I see in the statistics, is there's another group that's also leaving and that's the boomers. The boomers are not the teenagers of today. They were the teenagers of the 60s and the 70s. This is not a child conversation. This is not a young family issue. This is a church issue. This is a church family issue. If we can't have real conversations here, then what happens? Well, then, well, then you go out into the virtual world, to the digital world, and people embrace all conversations and they take all those conversations in all kinds of directions. Most of them are not towards God. So we allow our young people, and now we're also allowing our older people to go and find answers in places that are not the right answer. You see, what happens on, in a virtual environment is that there's this promise of control, that you are in control, that you, you get to, to control the, the dopamine uh, receptors going on in your brain. You get to have the, the pleasure when you want it. You get to, to have all this nuance. There's so much novelty out there. But what it really does is it enslaves us to this pursuit of novelty, this pursuit of dopamine in our brains. And we start looking nothing like Jesus. But then we still come to church and we still keep our appointments and we still continue to cultivate the acquaintance relationships with each other. Jesus did not die on the cross. 
Jesus did not walk out of an empty tomb for us to develop acquaintances with each other. When we settle for acquaintance, we're disregarding the gospel and the sacrifice of our Savior. When we refuse to have uncomfortable conversations, we're leaving the back door wide open for all generations to walk away. There's got to be something more here than just acquaintances and keeping meetings. This assembly of people, we understand what Christ has done. So how has that changed how we live? In youth ministry, we'd get back from a mission trip and you'd hear kids all the time say, man, just this trip changed my life. About a week later, I would try to follow up with them and say, tell me, how has your living changed today? Well, usually by about a week, week and a half, the emotional high wears off and we kind of slip back into our old, old ways. And that's not a teenager problem, that's a me problem as well. We were buried with Christ in baptism. Therefore, we are united in a resurrection like his. We are a new creation. This is a place where people struggle, where people hurt. This is a place where people come with temptations and they find accountability and they find encouragement. They find people that are willing to cry with them and to hurt with them. We've got folks right now that are struggling with diagnoses. We've got folks right now that are struggling with loss. And we have folks right now that are struggling with sin. And if we're not in each other's lives, then all three of those groups of people are going to drown. And what we don't realize is we're probably in one of those three categories at one time or another. The church in the digital age prays for each other and with each other. If you've ever been in the, the hospital in the elevator there and you find yourself talking with someone and they're sharing why they're there, who they're visiting, you're sharing why you're there, who you're visiting, and then they stop and they pray for you in the moment. To me, it's, it's an unsettling moment because it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it is moving. We talked about Sunday night for the Caring for Mom and Dad workshop when Mike Baker and Jonathan Barksdale shared their experience as they were caring for their aging parents. And when people would pull them aside and pray with them in the moment, it's moving because it's what we're supposed to do. It's how we communicate with each other and how we communicate with God. When we sing together, do you know we're singing to one another? We have all kinds of tools in our arsenal to encourage. And in a digital age, we can connect from anywhere on the planet virtually. So what are we doing with that virtual connection? Is it making the substance of that relationship better? Or are we using that to keep us at a distance? We pray for and we pray with each other. In Acts chapter 12, turn with me there. In Acts, we have a, a horrible situation going on. In verse 1, it says, About the time that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. He murdered James. He saw that there was a positive reaction from the Jews. And he said, okay, I'll keep the momentum going. Let's lock up Peter. So Peter gets falsely incarcerated. And look in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Prayer is powerful. If you believe that, then you will live that. Prayer is powerful. If you believe that, then you're not going to just say your nightly prayer before you go to bed or before you eat your meal. We will pray without ceasing. We'll have a prayerful mindset. When something good happens, we pray and we thank God. When something difficult happens, we drop to our knees and we pray and we say, God, sustain us. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Continue to make us more like Jesus because he overcame all. Prayer is our conduit to God. And sometimes we throw it around. I'll pray for you. Okay, appreciate it, man. Thank you. 
Another, another word is never said. That is a blatant disregard for the most powerful tool that God has given us. One of the most powerful tools. If you keep reading, now Herod, that's when Herod was about to bring him out in verse 6 on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. This is a bit much for one man who is not a violent offender. If you keep reading, you'll see that the angel comes and, <laughs> I love this, basically slaps him in the face and he says, dress yourself, put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you, follow me. He went out and he followed him. Peter thinks that he's having a, a vision. He thinks he's having a dream here. He thinks he's in a virtual reality of sorts. And then he finally gets to a point he realizes, kind of comes to himself, the angel leaves him, he says, no, this is real. And so where does he go? Verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard that came to the iron gate, leading into the city, it opened for them on its own accord. They went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure the Lord has sent this angel. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Another comical moment happens when, uh, when Rhoda opens the door. She hears his voice, or didn't get to the door. She hears his voice there knocking. She doesn't even open the door. He just, she leaves him there standing on the doorstep, runs back, tells everybody, he's here, he's here. What we've been praying for and who we've been praying for, it happened. Prayer is powerful. It's more powerful than any virtual reality. It's more powerful than, than any app or platform can provide. And it's more powerful than any relationship that we can imagine because it brings us in connection with God. Why is it not more part of our relationships with each other? It has to be. You're going to hear this more and more, especially over the next year. We want this place to be a place where we have a culture of prayer. We want that because we know it works. We know it's powerful. And we know that it's from, this, from the Bible. In Colossians 1, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Colossians 1 and verse 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes that we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul knew the reputation of the Christians around him. He wanted desperately to be with them. In the book of Philippians, in his letter to the church at Philippi, he opens up by saying something very similar, that I give thanks to my God always for you. If you skip down, I think it's verse 7 or so. He says, I long so badly to be with you. Paul wanted to be with the Christians everywhere Christians were, but he couldn't. So he leveraged the technology of his day and he wrote a letter. And he made sure that they knew how much he wanted to be with them, to be in their presence, because there's something about being in the presence of each other. There's a true fellowship. Because the image is not the same as what the image points to. I don't know if you've ever done much study on the topic of culture, but I read a book this past year, and the author wrote that you don't really change culture. You create new culture that people are drawn to. To some degree, maybe that's semantics, but I really like it. The church in the digital age crea creates culture. You know what? We did it in ages before the digital age as well. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet is reading a letter basically from God to God's people, these people that have been in, in captured in, uh, enslaved in Babylon, and he says, I want you to build houses, I want you to plant gardens, and I want you to multiply. I want you to give your, uh, your children a marriage. I want you to receive children in marriage. I want you to grow and I want you to pray for the city where you are. 
As a good friend of mine once said, grow where you're planted. How many lives has Eli Williams touched with that message? Come straight from the Bible. God's people, regardless of circumstance, will continue to be God's people. And we will continue to do God's people things, like be in each other's lives. And we'll use whatever tools at our disposal in whatever age in which we live to do so and to do so effectively. Leverage for the good and to make sure that we don't get caught up in the bad. In John chapter 13 and verse 35, we read about the distinctive nature of God's people and they come from the words of Christ himself. He said, my people will be known by the way that they love each other. The people around you will know that you belong to me by how well you love each other. When you love someone, you forgive someone. When you love someone, you're willing to reconcile with them. When you love someone, you pay attention to them. When you love someone, you sacrifice to be in their world and to make sure that they're in your world. All those things Jesus did his entire ministry here on earth. We open with Romans chapter 12. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are united in Christ. Ephesians tells us the same thing, that Christ is the head of the church, that we are members of that body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The old folks can't say of the young folks, you're too ornery, you're too irresponsible, you're too impatient. The young folks can't say of the old folks, you smell funny, you're too slow, you're too whatever. First of all, middle school boys, can't cast no stones on the smelly part. Secondly, we need each other because I need the wisdom of people older than me and I need to be investing in people younger than me. I probably don't have a lot of wisdom to share, but I got some because I've been through those life stages. So who am I looking to spend time with, to sit down with at lunch, to pray with? Who's looking for me? A lot of people, as it turns out. Get random cards, just thinking about you. Appreciate the work you do. Love you and your family. I know it's stressful, but you're doing a good job. Keep up the good work. Man. I can't tell you how many times I've needed that. In that moment where you're just, you're at your, your wit's end, you're, you're desperate, you're frustrated, and then seemingly out of nowhere, here comes some encouragement from someone who loves you and prays for you and with you. The church in the digital age is the church of Christ. God's people. We're members of the kingdom and everything that we're a part of here, the singing together, partaking of the Lord's Supper, we do that. Why? Because it points to his return. We remember his death until we get to be a part of his return. We come and we worship and we assemble and we pray and we study the Bible together and we confess sin together. And we respond to other people confessing sin in a way that deserves respect so that they can trust us to come and do it again. And we know that we can then confess to them because we are God's family. You can be sick here, but just know that we don't intend for you to stay sick. You come to the hospital to get well. You come, you assemble, and you gather with the church to be lifted up. The church builds itself up in love. That's why it's a living, breathing organism. Last week, I, I said the, the phrase that we were designed to heal, both physically, when you fall down and get a scrape and a boo-boo, eventually it scabs over and it heals and it, new skin grows. Our bodies are remarkable. Our bodies point to something greater. 
That's why we worship the creator and not the created. That's why we look to God when we see in, in creation, in nature, wonderful things, leaves changing. We just went through a season where the leaves, bright, vibrant colors, that points to a creator. That points to our God. Our relationships with each other, especially in the household of faith, must also point each other to God. We cannot settle for mediocrity. We cannot settle for acquaintances anymore. We live according to the reality that is in Christ. Today, if you're settling for mediocrity, if you're settling for a virtual reality that just says, hey, how you doing? I'm fine and keeps going. You're in the right place. Today, if your marriage is struggling, you're struggling to reconcile, you're struggling because the, the intimacy is, is a strain, you're struggling because the honesty is not there anymore, because the trust is not there anymore, you're in the right place. If you're struggling to let go of anger and malice, struggling being honest, you're in the right place. And if you're just struggling, because life is hard, you're in the right place. Good news is, Gesundheit. The good news is we're all here with those same things. We're all here to laugh sometimes, to cry together sometimes, to bear one another's burdens. This is the church. This is a hospital. This morning, if you're struggling, if you're hurting, and if the church can do anything for you, we're here. Won't you please come as we stand and as we sing?